This is the Only in Miami show, sponsored by Morningside Mortgage Corporation of Bay Harbor Islands. Tonight's show is hosted by Grant Stern. Find out more about our sponsor at www.morningsidemortgage.com. That's www.morningsidemortgage.com. This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlymiamiradio.com. News, politics, culture, and more. Check it out at onlymiamiradio.com. And we have a phenomenal show planned for you tonight, so stay tuned. you got to hear these two phenomenal guests. We're going to start tonight with Miami Book Fair author and New York Times best-selling author Malcolm Nance. You've seen Malcolm on MSNBC. We got a great extended interview yesterday at the Miami Book Fair, which was held at the Miami-Dade College Wolfson Campus in downtown Miami, where it is held every November. You can find out more about it at www.miamibookfair.com. And we are going to talk about Malcolm's new book. It just came out and hit the best-sellers list and it is The Plot to Betray America, uh, a phenomenal book from a phenomenal author, somebody who's been ahead of the curve for years now, who actually wrote the book about Russian election interference during the 2016 election. Then we have a really great guest who lives in Miami, and he was on Shark Tank recently. His name is Aaron Hirschhorn. And he is the CEO and founder of Galant, which is a very, very interesting pet technology company. He was featured on Shark Tank uh, just about a week ago. And, you know, we're very thrilled to have Aaron on the show for the very first time tonight, later in the program. But this is the part of the program where I get a few minutes to speak directly with you, the listening audience, about issues of importance that impact us citywide and sometimes beyond. And... I want to divide this time up between what's happening locally and what's happening nationally, because there is so much national news to do with the impeachment inquiry, what's happening in D.C. It's happening in real time, minute by minute. And we'll get to that in just a sec. But I wanted to speak about what's happening locally here in the city of Miami and in Florida. And in particular, I wanted to talk about the city of Miami's decision to declare a climate emergency this past week. Now, I think that's a good idea, but what were they waiting for? The city of Miami passed a bond. It's called the Go Bond, or I'm sorry, the city of Miami Forever Bond, pardon me, the Miami Forever Bond. And we passed that two years ago because of the not just looming threat, but the present threat of the impact of sea level rise and, and climate change. So what was the city waiting for? We just had a major set of elections and nobody said they have some particular idea about what to do about climate change. Yet we saw the mayor of Miami, Francis Suarez, out there posing for pictures with some young folks who maybe don't realize that these guys have, I guess, spent two years planning an emergency, maybe more. It's really unfortunate because the city of Miami is ground zero, but even more ground zero for climate change and sea level rise is the Florida Keys. And Key Largo is, has a neighborhood in particular that is suffering the most direct impact, and this is what it's going to be like, folks. Maybe not for you this week, maybe, maybe not this year, 
not this decade, it's almost over, but it's coming and it's scary and it needs to be dealt with. And that is a, a neighborhood in Key, West, uh, Key Largo, excuse me, which has experienced almost three months of dry day flooding from the king tides. The New York Times reported on that. It's very unusual that the New York Times swoops in and catches the story. But the Miami Herald reported on it after 40 days and 40 nights, which they figured met the biblical standard. Over 200 homes in this Key Largo community have become relatively inaccessible because salt water in the street keeps you from driving because your car can, you know, get destroyed. In fact, the only service that's left in that neighborhood right now is the Postal Service. Luckily, it's the keys so people can paddle around if they want to see their neighbors. But that's probably not going to be an option for a lot of people in Miami when this problem gets worse. Because who wants to paddle around in 10 to 18 inches of fetid, stinky, salt water that is brackish in your neighborhood? It's long past time that people in Miami take climate change seriously. And that includes the mayor of Miami's good friend, Marco Rubio the U.S. Senator Marco Rubio, the person who recommended Mayor Suarez as one of Time's 100 up-and-coming people. Except for one funny thing about that. In his recommendation letter, he could not name one accomplishment. Well, if he wants to have an accomplishment, this is the time. The city of Miami needs him, and we need our leadership to start acting like leaders again, and not like we've seen them behave over the last four years. Excuse me, last two years in particular. And we have a new commissioner coming in, Alex Diaz de la Portilla, who will take his seat on the dais in District 1 starting at the next City of Miami meeting. So it should all be very interesting to watch unfold. But now that they've declared a climate change, let's see if they do a climate change emergency. Let's see if they do anything about it. Now, I wanted to talk for a minute about what's going on nationally because it is evolving so quickly so quickly that literally as I sat down in the studio tonight, major news broke that a federal judge has ordered former White House counsel Don McGahn to testify to Congress, shattering the White House's claims of, quote, absolute immunity. It's a long-awaited ruling, and it will apply to other high-ranking officials in the White House for the ongoing impeachment inquiry. Uh, uh, quoting the ruling, uh, the judge said the president does not have the power to excuse him or her from taking an action that the law requires. Fifty years of say so within the executive branch does not change that fundamental truth. That is uh, the words in the ruling of Judge Katenji Brown Jackson, a district judge in D.C. And as we saw over the weekend, something extremely extraordinary has begun to unfold that started on Thursday morning when news that broke that Devin Nunes, the ranking member of the House Intelligence Committee overseeing these impeachment hearings, these public hearings, is actually entangled in the facts that they are hearing and investigating himself. And over the weekend, Democratic Coalition filed a House ethics complaint The following morning, the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee said it's very likely that we'll see an ethics investigation into Rep. Nunes, the ranking member. All it takes is one member of the House of Representatives to start an ethics investigation. So it looks like we're going to have that. And 
The House Intelligence Chairperson, Adam Schiff, the Democrat from California, has already said that his committee is making a written report about the 30 hours of testimony from the 12 witnesses, including the damning testimony from EU Ambassador Gordon Sondland, where he said that there was a quid pro quo of official action in exchange for an investigation to benefit the president's re-election campaign. We're in dangerous times, folks. Let's hope that this impeachment inquiry continues to reveal the truth because it looks like it's going to lead to a bill of impeachment pretty soon. And we'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami show. This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlymiamiradio.com. News, politics, culture, and more. Check it out at onlymiamiradio.com. And we are back with a special guest from the Miami Book Fair. Here is my interview with Malcolm Nance. We're here with Malcolm Nance. He is the author of The Plot to Betray America, How Team Trump Embraced Our Enemies, Compromised Our Security, and how we can fix it. And we're here at the Miami Book Fair in downtown Miami's Wolfson campus of Miami-Dade College. You can find out more at miamibookfair.com. It happens every year. Malcolm, thank you so much for joining me on the show tonight. It is a pleasure to be here. So Malcolm, can you tell our listeners a little bit about what inspired you to write your new title, The Plot to Betray America? Well, anyone who knows anything that I've done in terms of the media world, you'll know that I've had three books in the last three years about the Trump-Russia scandal, including the first book written about the Trump-Russia scandal, which was The Plot to Hack America. Um, and that book stemmed from my alarm uh, of identifying the Russian intelligence operation that the United States was being attacked. And in fact, I'm the first person in U.S. media to actually go on air and say the United States was being attacked. And as if to validate that, the next day, Donald Trump comes out and says, Russia, if you're listening, please, you know, hack Hillary Clinton's emails. And then they did. And they we did. Found they, out later they tried to do report. that. They tried to do it. They've yeah, never they actually got her emails right. directly from Hillary Clinton. They got them from other sources, which you can do when you can't get into a secure server, right? Oh, yeah. So 
in five weeks, I knocked out Plot to Hack America, which was an intelligence assessment of what had to be in place for Russia to carry this out, who had to be involved, and then what would eventually come. Uh, that book was delivered September 23rd, the same day that the CIA was delivering an identical report to President Barack Obama. And people ask me, they go, wow, that's really fast. How'd you do that? And I go, well, first off, I'm not a journalist. I'm a, I'm a U.S. intelligence officer. Uh, my job is... Retired. Retired, yes. Uh, and my job was to see things in patterns that are generally not privy to the average person in, 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 in America. I mean, you know, we, we see intelligence operations, we see behaviors, we see collections operations. And to people who have our experience, we can sniff out a real major operation. And that's what I did in that book. Um, fast forward a year later, I would write The, the Plot to Destroy Democracy. Uh, and that book was a strategic study of how Vladimir Putin was not just attacking the United States, but was attacking virtually every major democracy in the Western world with the intent to install not communist governments, which, you know, people think, oh, Vladimir Putin is an old communist KGB guy, which he is. But this is a KGB guy who becomes a super rich James Bond evil villain in real life. And he realized... But, but he was using but yeah. the, the Soviet Union's techniques, wasn't he? Was he was using the Soviet Union model and techniques for disinformation warfare. And disinformation propaganda couldn't move very fast in the old days because you have to use a typewriter and you would actually have to use a printing press. And there was a lot more gatekeepers. Yeah. Well, the media was a lot more legitimate back then because, you know, you couldn't get into UPI or the AP's information stream unless your story was checked by journalists. And the Russians would, like, go to India and buy, like, 10 you know, media organizations and put fake journalists in there and get all of them to corroborate the same story as right. if it was legit and then try to get that into the Western news media stream. And it generally didn't work. Um, but some of them did work, like the rumor that still exists today that the AIDS virus was developed by the CIA in order to kill blacks and gays. That was, we actually know the Russian intelligence officer who created that that piece of disinformation that still exists today. But as technology shot forward, so did Russian capability. And so Plot to Destroy Democracy was really about how Putin is re-engineering uh, the Western world by using democracy to vote out democracies, by funding right-wing extremists, in some cases fascist governments, like the government of Austria, that was formed in 1952, the party was formed in 1952, by two ex-Nazi SS officers, and oh, yeah. is now running Austria. And, you know, and other... But their government like fell after Russian involvement was revealed. Exposed, right. Well, it fell because they videotapes, probably by Austrian intelligence, found them in, you know, literally in Ibiza, Spain, meeting with the Russians, planning on how to take illegal money from Vladimir Putin's United Russia Party, of which they had a contractual relationship with Russia the day after they, they had won, and also were sort of a gateway to Donald Trump for the, you know, for the Austrians. And, and Italy had a similar situation happen with their far-right wing right. party and as well. Right, and you see the far-right of Italy, you know, uh, you know um, the, uh, the Italian uh, Nor Northern League uh, and their, their, their sort of affiliated group of 
anti-government and supposedly independent libertarians who all come together. And the first thing they're doing is meeting with Steve Bannon, you know, Donald, you know, Donald Trump's Russia-like philosopher who was who's enthralled with with Putin's philosophy of breaking down NATO and getting rid of Europe. So all, Russia has been seeding all of these right-wing political parties throughout Europe with the intent to break liberal democracy. Putin himself recently just said that liberalism in, is dead. It's a, it's a um, I think his exact words were, is that it is a defunct ideology and that it should be replaced with populism, which is another way of saying autocracy, you know, that's pushed by these ignorant masses. So that book, Plot to Destroy Democracy, did very well. It was also a Times bestseller. Uh, it debuted in the middle of summer at number six in the summer reading season. And I read it because every once in a while a writer should read his books. And it terrified me. I mean, I literally scared myself reading that book. Going, wow, it's one thing to write all this stuff. But when you read it comprehensively and you see it's just very... Everything we see is just so easy to see that Russia doesn't care that we know it's happening. But in hindsight... It all seems so clear. Well, but. because they know democracy is slow. And democracy cannot move faster than autocrats and dictators who are voting, getting their people to vote it out of existence. And so that book sort of ended with the American, what I call American fifth columnists, which is the evangelical right, which are very closely tied to Moscow now. Uh, and they started actually co-opting them in 2010 by holding these conferences in Moscow, these you know protection of Christianity conferences. The alt-right, which was Steve Bannon's baby, that's how we became a millionaire. He weaponized gamers into being these radical teenage conservatives who hated women. Uh, and then the NRA, of which we know quite a bit about because the spy who was in the NRA was actually arrested by the FBI, served 18 months in prison, and only recently has been left the United States. But her job was to infiltrate her way to the top and make contact with Trump's family, and she did. And ironically, she's a hero in Russia. For what? I don't know. <laughs> right? I mean, they kind of don't want to say what she did, but she's a hero. Something. Right? <laughs> and that's, I mean, that's almost spy talk for it. You know what we were doing. Right. Right? So I was out there doing something. And so she, you know, did her job very well. The NRA was co-opted, supported Donald Trump to the hilt. We don't know if the you know, $25 million that came from the NRA could have been part of a pool of money. There's, there's hints to it, but there's a lot of investigation left to be done. So that led me with only one last plot to write, or so I think, um, you know, because this impeachment is creating an entirely new chapter. Um, that was to focus on Team Trump. And that's why I subtitled it, How Team Trump Embraced Our Enemies and Compromised National Security and How We Can Fix It. Um, and it's interesting because the book came out just as the impeachment started. And what is in the book is every dirty trick related to national security from Team Trump and literally how this cast of characters, when you read it, I mean, I have to have a personalities glossary in the back, an appendix, because it's almost impossible to keep up with all the Russians in this story, all the mobsters in this story. Team Trump's own people. But, you know, I go to chapter four in there, and that chapter is all Paul Manafort and Roger Stone. 
the two people who have both gone to prison, with Roger Stone, of course, just being convicted of eight counts of lying to Congress. And witness tampering. And witness tampering. And obstruction of justice. You can never forget those. He's very well-rounded. Yeah, you know, know, when when he goes in, he's gold medal on all of them. So I went and did deep dives on these characters because it was very clear to me uh, based on all of my other writings that the, the people I called in my first book that I had written in, you know, really fast in August of 2016, I called them the Kremlin crew, you know, with two Ks, right? Kremlin crew. And it was very clear these people had a loyalty to something that was beyond our flag and our Constitution. And the question was, what was it that they have their loyalty to? And what could influence people like Jeff Sessions to meet secretly with Russians and then, you know, lie about it or deceive the FBI about it? Something beyond your, your, your loyalty to the United States. Now, people like you and I, you could start putting gold bricks on this table and they were like, okay, will you betray us for a billion dollars? Will you betray your country for two billion dollars? And we're like, no, no, no. I'm going to get $10 million for the book that told me that I didn't betray my nation, right? And how you tried to get me. So these guys obviously are not writing that book, okay? They went along with Donald Trump's scheme, and it all seems to focus on Russian money coming into real estate and then Trump Tower 2.0. That's the second time he tried to get a Trump Tower, which... In Moscow. In Moscow, that most people don't realize. He tried it in 1987, 1988. He went to Russia in the Soviet Union and tried to build a Trump Tower in Moscow there, but realized they didn't have any money and they weren't his kind of person and they weren't going to ideologically turn him. So it didn't go anywhere, but within 10 years, he would be eating out of the Russians' hands. Well, isn't that the big reason why the hunt for Trump's tax returns is so all-consuming for Congress right now? Sure. I mean, Trump's tax returns... He has to explain where he got his money from and what he spent his money on. And, you know, also talking to Deutsche Bank, right? Who financed Trump's loans? Because it wasn't like the Germans in their USA subsidiary just said, yeah, just give that guy a billion dollars and uh, we don't need any paperwork. None whatsoever. And we don't need anyone to back him at a time that no bank in America or the West would ever loan money to Donald Trump. So there had to have been some relationship that was beyond, you know, you know, girls at bikini parties. And and one thing that's always piqued my interest is how he borrowed money from the commercial division of Deutsche Bank, didn't pay it back. And then the private bank continued to fund fund his projects. Right. Well, that that tells you, you know, in, in our world, in the intelligence world, we have these things called black holes because like the astrophysics world, uh, you don't see the answer, but gravity is pulling everything towards a black center where you see nothing. And that nothing is the answer. But if it's like, hey, let's loan Donald Trump a billion dollars and not pay it back, you know, or why would we loan him money and he never pays it back? Well, all of those lines that are being pulled to the black hole, the answer you could surmise is someone's backing this loan and they will pay it off. We'll get, because banks don't loan money unless they make money, right? right? Right, Win, lose, or draw. They're going to make money. They're the, well, the house money. is supposed to always win. They're the whether casino, you're a casino or right? a bank. That's and, right. And by the way, a casino is just a, a bank with an entertainment facility for your <laughs> right. typical gangster. Yeah, the little old lady that wins $1,500 from Pasadena, you know, there's there's 20 people they're taking $10,000 from. 
Sure. But I mean, in this job. example... She's a marketing tool. In this example, you have somebody who owned casinos that lost money. And bankrupted which is them. Right? Incredibly improbable. Yeah, a casino is an ATM for money that never stops. And Donald Trump bankrupted those because it just showed that he had no acumen as a businessman whatsoever. Even his father, who was a brilliant businessman, a brilliant real estate mogul, he only made one investment in his entire life that lost money, and that was $50 million that he had loaned to Donald Trump Jr. Donald Trump for, I believe it was Trump Airlines, which collapsed immediately. I mean, it was just mind-boggling. And this was a guy whose ego said, put my name on things and people will buy it. And, of course, nobody buy it. And I mean, you know. So how can we fix it? That's the end of the long, long, lengthy subtitle. How can we fix it? Well, there are some simple things, but, you know, the fundamental way of fixing anything that's happening now is very simple, and it's sunlight. And that sounds like, oh, Malcolm, but we're out there putting stuff out. No, it's how you put information out. The Russians and guys like Trump, they use a very well-proven KGB technique, right? Or I'm sure it's, it's more popular elsewhere, but the KGB used it everywhere. It's called meta-narrative framing. And they would change your actual perception of how you perceive what's happening. And, uh, you know, uh, I think Doctor Who constantly called it a perception filter, right? Where you think you're seeing a lovely English garden, and when you turn the perception filter off, you're in a barren alien wasteland, right? Where, you, you know, a giant monster is coming to, to eat you instead of that dog that's running down the street. And the Russians have mastered using modern technology to, to change how you see the world by shaping your worldview in, with information. And you know, the funniest part about it is, is that there's an entire segment of US media that doesn't believe that, that doesn't believe in any of the Trump-Russia scandal or the Ukraine scandal. I just had an interview with New Yorker magazine and the, 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 you know, the guy who did the interview was He's challenging questions, but if you read the interview, my, my answers are all rock solid, and they're all backed up by everything ever written by the U.S. government, right? The Mueller report, you might have heard of that, and the CIA report, the Defense National Intelligence Estimate, the Senate Intelligence Report, the House Intelligence Report, and every investigation that the United States was attacked by Russia in 2016 in an information warfare attack and that Donald Trump tried to extort the Ukraine. And when you read this interview, the guy's like, well, you say Trump's perception about Russia was changed and that they manage his perception through information. Proof that. And it's like, have you never heard Donald Trump speak? I mean, he for, for uh, years now, definitely three years as president of the United States, he has never said anything that was negative to Russia or would harm Russia or even not be complimentary to Russia's interests, but which were absolutely damning and detrimental to America's interests. Helsinki is just one example. I, have, I do a whole chapter on where, you know, you read it and his, his ability to damage nas American national security and NATO's national security comes in two flavors. One where he's helping Russia through whatever was said to him. Because, you know, when you come off, when Donald Trump, who doesn't even know where Crimea is on the map, comes out and says, well, well, Crimea, well, you know, they all speak Russian anyway, and that was part of Russia. And it's like, 
Did they mail you the talking points by email or did they come into your office and say, Donald, now you must say Crimea's all speak Russian? Because you didn't get that from the United States intelligence community who is telling you that this well, is a NATO know. ally. We know from this week's hearings that Donald Trump does not go off of the notes or off of any of the reports that he's getting from the interagency process no. at the National Security he, Council. It's someone tells him or he had, and this is what I say, his perception uh, is a set of rose-colored glasses that I believe were put on his face at the Miss Universe pageant in 2014 when he had that secret two-hour meeting with the 12 richest oligarchs of Russia, including Putin's personal representative, and he came out of that meeting saying, Trump Tower, Moscow is a go, and from that minute onward, everything about Vladimir Putin was positive. Everything. Look at all of his tweets in 2014. They're scary. I mean, this is a guy who was like, Oh, Putin is a great leader after the day after they invade Crimea and the world is condemning it. And here he is insulting Barack Obama. It's like, dude, do you, you know, are you going to Steven Seagal this thing? Are you going to be like Gerard Depardieu? Are they going to be issuing you a Russia passport? Well, I mean, he gave that interview uh, at the Miss Universe pageant to uh, MSNBC. And the first time I saw that interview, which was well after they played it one time, uh, they played it once, and it never really made another appearance. But that was the most pro-Russia interview I've ever seen from an American up until, you know. You come out of a meeting with 12 multi, 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 multi-billionaires, including a guy who's representing Putin, and they estimate Putin may have between 100 and 200 billion illicit dollars. What is Donald Trump's single motivating ideology that we've seen throughout his entire life? Other people's money. And this is a guy who really doesn't have money, all right, relative to the people that are in that room. And those people are all there treating you like you are the golden boy. And they go, Donald, you know Crimea is this. Donald, you know Obama's that. Donald, you know, stick with us. Donald. I mean, they didn't have to work hard on the They Obama didn't have part. to work hard, no. But the point is, don't come and tell me, like, like this, this, this uh, interviewer was like, well, what's your evidence for that? The evidence is everything that we have all seen with clearly what a lot of people like to think are our lying eyes, right? And so I, there's an entire class of people in this country, including some really people who call themselves journalists, um, who believe that the entire Trump-Russia scandal and Trump's influence from Russia, which was never investigated in the Mueller report, all of this is a lie and fake. And this isn't the right-wing media. These are mainstream media people who will come up and, well, I actually had a journalist on a, a program that I go on regularly come up and say that I was a, a fantasist and a conspiracy theorist because of plot to destroy democracy. And it goes, you know, there's 700 references in that book. I mean, I only reference what they said and what they did. And you're essentially telling us that the entire Trump-Russia scandal is a lie, a fantasy, and a conspiracy theorist. And this is a, you know, a, a right-wing, not right-wing, but a, a conservative journalist who supposedly is a never-Trumper. And it's like, okay, that's weird. And these people help shape Russia's narrative. And in, technically, they're useful idiots, is what the Russians would have called it. Well, you know, you, you call it the, the plat, uh, plot to hack democracy and hacking destroy democracy. Or, well okay i'm sorry the plot to hack america the plot to hack america mm -hmm. and one of the most common computer hacking techniques is to overwhelm 
a computer DDoS? with too much information. Yeah. I mean, that is actually really the basis of all hacking. They overwhelm either the memory of the computer, they, they overwhelm the network to prevent it from communicating. Right. And, and isn't that very analogous to what's happening in the disinformation space? That it they is. overwhelm people with so much information? It is. And in the last chapter of that book, I had, I had surmised, I said, what's really hacked here wasn't the Democratic National Committee or the, you know, the Podesta emails. They hacked the mindset of the American public. And I had a, a really interesting tiff uh, with a journalist, uh, he calls himself, was very well known in the United States. And he came at me after a after he had seen a Fox News segment with Tucker Carlson where I said something that is commonplace. I said the Russians use information warfare techniques to craft a perception and you, when, if you adopt that, you will only see it through that lens. And he goes, where do you get that? How do you know that? What, what, what source do you use? And I'm like, dude, 350 pages, you might want to read a page of it. Everything is referenced in there. He's like, no, I don't believe it. Where did you get that? I go, the NATO handbook on Russian disinformation operations. And it's like, this stuff is not something because you're a journalist or you call yourself a journalist and you just found it or you are beholden to the, to the theme that it's all a fantasy and that it's all conspiracy theory. For whatever your agenda is, whether you were pro-Moscow, like this person lived in Moscow in the 1990s and had some wild adventures running an independent newspaper there, and he, he loves Russia. Who and shall remain nameless? Yeah, I don't care. But all I'm saying is this. Don't come out here three years later after tens of thousands of pages have been written about it. The entire Mueller report, section one, Essentially, as, as, as somebody on, I think it was Zerlina Maxwell on MSNBC came out, and she goes, that should be called the Malcolm Report. That is plot to hack America writ large. Everything he said in July 2016 has now been validated in there. Don't come out and tell us that America's crazy and that everything we see with our lying eyes, that's like equal to 9-11 truther. Stuff like, oh, well, how did those buildings fall? And it's like an airplane hit it. No, but that couldn't cause Building 7 to fall. And it's like saying Trump, Russia's not real, you are the conspiracy theorist. Saying climate change isn't real, you are the conspiracy theorist. Saying the Ukraine impeachment is a fantasy that was drummed up by Hillary Clinton and that the pro-NATO, pro-United States government of Ukraine actually hacked the Democratic National Committee and innocent Russia did nothing about that and you're just blaming these awesome guys. That's a conspiracy theory, right? And then you have this entire section of the media who are fringe, who are beholden to calling Robert Mueller. You know, everything you write, everything that any person who has written an empirically checkable, quantifiable, repeatable experiment, and they go, no, no, that H2O stuff you keep talking about, that's conspiracy theory. Water is just something that exists. And it's like science, well, I don't have to do science, but in my world of intelligence, we show our work. And my books repeatedly show their work. And there's... There's got to be a reason I've got three times bestsellers on this. And, you know, in a week that Donald Trump Jr. spends $100,000 to pump his book to number one. Oh, a lot more than $100,000. Yeah, yeah, 100,000 books. Yeah. yeah. And then Kimberly Guilfoyle and, and Nikki Haley. And it's like, 
Uh, my books sell because people who read them know they're going to learn something. And what they're going to learn will be grounded in what we say in the intelligence community, ground truth. And ground truth usually has five or ten references. And my book has 700 references. But I want to tell you another thing. One more thing. As an African American, it's very, you know, it's, you get treated differently. Uh, Naveed Jamali came up with this, the, the FBI counterintelligence guy who was a double agent. And he goes, we get treated very differently. Uh, for three years, we can hammer this whole thing. And then the second book on Trump Russia came out 13 months after Plot to Hack America. Right. The third book came out 23 months after Plot to Hack America, written by journalists. And those books are all feted and, you know, and whereas, you know, intelligence people are people who are way ahead of the curve. And I'll tell you, all three of my books were surfing the wave because they were essentially generating the wave. Um, Plot to Betray uh, America came out the second week of the impeachment. No, the first week of the impeachment. And it's about everything that leads right up to the impeachment. And, you know, and then I go, whoa, Donald Trump Jr. has a book. <laughs> you know? So the people who really want to learn will actually learn something. Uh, and there's no conspiracy theory involved. But again, the first thing, that, first thing that happened, first day that book came out, I was attacked by Mediaite. And they, right. they literally manufactured a quote. And the videotape showed that the only thing that they got right was the words, quote, since 1977, unquote. And it's like, what's going on out there? There are people who are invested in not making this work against Donald Trump. And some of them are libertarian, alt-left, alt, you know, alt, so alt-left they come around to the alt-right. And they, they, they will say anything you say. The sun came up this morning and it's yellow. That's a conspiracy theory. Um, <laughs> but the conspiracy theorists are these people who don't believe what every person in the world is seeing with their own eyes. Well, Malcolm, the, the plot to betray America, how Team Trump embraced our enemies, compromised our security, and how we can fix it is on bookshelves now. It is. And can you give out for our listeners your Twitter handle and your website if they want to take this conversation onto the internet sure. after right. the show? My Twitter handle is at Malcolm Nance. That's M-A-L-C-O-L-M-N-A-N-C-E. And soon you'll have a MalcolmNance.org website, which will be up, which will have all of my media and people are, I get inundated by the hundreds. I just did um, the Commonwealth Club in uh, San Francisco. And one of the questions we had, they sold out all the books was, you know, how will we get to personalize your books? And I found that there, people really like having their books personalized. So we'll have an ability for you to either mail us your book and have it signed uh, for donation to a veterans charity. Oh, or cool. we'll sell you a book that will donate to a veterans charity, you know, and then it will, um, it will go out. Well, Malcolm Nance, thank you so much for joining me on the program tonight. It's my pleasure. And we'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami show.
Welcome back. This is the Only in Miami show. And I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlymiamiradio.com. News, politics, culture, and more. Check it out at onlymiamiradio.com. And we are back live with Aaron Hirshhorn. He is the CEO of Gallant. And he was recently on Shark Tank. Let's take a listen. Take a look at these little puppies. Aren't they so cute? So I brought one for each shark. Yay! <laughs> okay, Damon, that's Bear. Hey, Bear, how you doing? That's Bunny. <laughs> All right. Hi. So, Aaron, if, this, if this guy pees on me, it's over between us. I understand. It's a risk I'm willing to take. <laughs> that's Panda. Who do I get? You have Fred. What up, Fred? Hi. What are you doing, Freddy? Hi. Oh, <laughs> so sweet. Now bear with me for a second. If you were to fast forward just 10 short years, four out of five of these little guys are going to suffer from devastating age-related ailments like arthritis, blindness, or worse. Oh. Who's there? <laughs> oh, my God. Oh. Move along. And we are here with Aaron Hirshhorn, the CEO of Gallant. Aaron, thank you so much for joining me on the program tonight. Hey, thanks for having me. Very dramatic start to your appearance on ABC's Shark Tank. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your company, Gallant? Yeah, uh, so it's Gallant. Gallant, I'm happy to tell everybody. What we do is uh, stem cell banking and regenerative medicine for pets. Uh, So we basically take uh, something that people do for their kids. Their umbilical cord blood can be banked because it's rich in stem cells and young, healthy stem cells. But nobody had figured out a way to do that for pets, and that was our innovation. And then with pets, because the regulatory framework is different, uh, you're actually able to practice more advanced cellular medicines. And so we do some really cool research and development and therapies as well. So in practical terms, doesn't that mean that it can help extend the life of people's pets if they use your service? Uh, I believe that is where the science is heading. In fact, there are research studies that have been published to date. One that I love that came out in April where they took 100 old mice and they put them in two groups. One group got their young stem cells and one group got saline, the control group. The group that got their own young stem cells lived three times longer. So it's wow. not, it's real science. It's real. And absolutely, this is what's happening soon with pets and frankly, with us as well. I believe in a future where we'll be able to take uh, a once a year injection of young stem cells with some other goodies and be living longer and living healthier. We better hurry that up. So how did you get into stem cell research? I mean, how did you get into this? This is a very unique field. Yeah. So I actually had a really bad back injury when I was 29 years old doing Brazilian jujitsu, herniated a couple discs, uh, had two surgeries that didn't work, had seven different cortisone shots, a nerve rhizotomy, traction, acupuncture, you name it. Sounds Nothing like Nothing worked. <laughs> Super fun, yeah. yeah. Good times. And then uh, three years ago, I got in a procedure where they took my own stem cells and they injected it into the injured discs. And this completely changed my life. I went from being on painkillers all the time to essentially cured. This morning, I played tennis, played football with my kids, I go kite surfing here in Miami. And so it changed my life. And... I began to, you know, understand and try to evaluate what the heck was going on in the market and how is it that this has worked so well on me, yet nobody knows about it and nobody talks about it. And, and that's sort of the beginning of uh, how, we, how we started Gallant. 
Now, I watched the appearance, so I, I have a little bit of foreknowledge about what you've been doing. Can you tell our listeners about <laughs> your last business? Because this is not your first rodeo in the, the pet uh, entrepreneur space, right? Yeah, I'm officially the pet guy now. So, Congratulations. Uh, in 2000, and, yeah, thanks, yeah. There are worse things to be, or better things to be as well. I, um, my wife and I lost our jobs in, during the recession, 2008, 2009. Started dog-sitting out of our house to make money and realized that we had an op- opportunity to turn that into something much bigger. And we created a company called Dog Vacay, which is uh, an online service or online network of dog sitters and dog walkers. Grew that to over $100 million in sales and merged it with a competitor called Rover.com, which is still around today and, and doing quite well. So if oh, anybody yeah. needs a dog sitter or dog walker, we are happy to help them out. Uh, I believe now I'm doing something a bit more uh, exciting and ultimately more impactful when I'm kind of excited about our path now. Well, how did you get into this kind of highly scientific field? Because Rover is an awesome app, and I'm actually a user, so I totally know what it's about. But how did you get into this highly scientific field? So I was trying to figure out why there wasn't more regenerative medicine for humans. Like, if this stem cell procedure worked for me, outside of the fact that it was kind of expensive, like, why isn't it done more? And the answer has a lot to do with the the FDA. So they regulate our own stem cells like a biological drug that essentially has to be taken through years of clinical trials in order to get approved. Well, it's not practical for a drug company to patent your own genetics and stem cells just to treat you. And so you have this disconnect where stem cell therapies work, but there's not a great way to make money on it, and there's not a lot of regulatory support. It's very difficult to work with the FDA. Yet with pets, that's not the case. And in an interesting way, pets don't live nearly as long as we do, which is quite sad and part of the the reason for my business being around. But it also means that from a science perspective, you can actually do a lot more things around longevity and health and wellness. So we can really study that we are making our pets live healthier, longer, and, and show it. And I believe that is going to drive the human side eventually. Because people, when people see their pets not getting arthritis or living a few years healthier, longer, running and chasing squirrels, those uh, letters to the FDA are going to start coming. You know, people are going to want that. Well, you know, a lot of these kind of, uh, you know, more edgy technologies and stem cell technologies mean, like you said, you can't do it on people, but with pets, uh, really, you can develop a lot and, and because there's less regulation. So do you think that eventually what you learn in the canine space is going to transfer over to the human space? I do. I think it transfers very directly. There's a lot of uh, commentary in the scientific world about how the mouse model for studies is really tough. Things don't really translate from mice to humans very well. But amazingly, from dogs to humans, there's incredible crossover. Um, so not just from that, but a lot of the techniques around growing the cells, and priming the cells, and all that is directly applicable to humans. And, you know, right now, our mission is really focused on pets and dogs and cats. And <clears throat> we're the only ones doing this. We're the only company with a non-invasive stem cell banking procedure. So really, step one is customers and, and therapies, and, and we're going to go from there. Well, can you explain to our listeners how you guys bank these stem cells? Because it, 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 I read about it, and it's it seems pretty straightforward because everybody gets these kind of services for their pets. Yeah, so there are a, a few. Um, there's a little bit of stem cell therapy available in the market today, 
but it requires, uh, it's very expensive, and it requires an invasive surgery on the animal. So what we did is we came up with the only non-invasive method, and we do it during the spay or neuter. So your dog is already getting spayed or neutered, and what we do is we isolate the stem cells from the reproductive tissue that they just throw in the trash. So any vet can do it with no training whatsoever. I don't mean to be crude about it, but really all they do is take the testicles or the uterus that they would have thrown in the trash, and they put it in our kit. And that gets sent to our lab where we isolate, characterize, and cryopreserve the stem cells to be delivered as medicine whenever it's needed by the animal. So all the customer does is they go to the website, gallant.com. They purchase, they choose their plan. We charge either 95 a year for storage or $595 for the life of the pet, and that's it. We take care of the rest. We send the kit to the veterinarian. We coordinate with the veterinarian. We literally do everything else. And so we think it's, um, we think it's a no-brainer. We think it should be done as commonly as microchipping, and that's our, that's our goal is to spread the word. So when do you guys launch? Because I, I saw that you guys are just about there, right? Yeah, actually, we launched uh, three weeks ago. So the, oh, okay. the show had filmed in February. In, uh, excuse me, the show had filmed in September, and we were a few weeks away from launch at that point. And then by the time it aired, we had we had just launched. So the timing was was great and drove a lot of traffic to the site and built a lot of awareness. So what was it like going on Shark Tank and pitching your product? Were you nervous? I was nervous. I mean, I spend a lot of time talking to investors. At my previous companies, I've raised several hundred million dollars of capital and different rounds of funding. So I'm very comfortable when it comes to investor questions. But this is not that. This is entertainment. And so in addition, you know, first of all, I brought puppies out. So I figured, like, at the very least, if I've got puppies, you know, what could go wrong? (laughs) Um, Yeah. It was funny. So we had these five puppies in the basket, and one of them almost jumped out. Like that—that that would have not have been good. <laughs> the yellow puppy fall on the floor. Um, but you walk out of that room, and it is just so bright. There are so many lights everywhere. Yet it's set up in a way that it really is just this direct conversation. Except for unlike a regular investor meeting where they're being a little bit nicer and more patient, these guys are just throwing questions at you two, three, four at a time, and. You've got to figure out, like, who do I answer? Who do I engage with? Why? How do I make the other one feel that I'm addressing their question or paying attention? And um, there was somebody that got in trouble, like, recently. Lori accused somebody of being a chauvinist because they weren't, like, looking at her when she asked the question. It's dangerous. I mean, you've got to really be on it. That was the most challenging part for me is just how do I kind of address everybody and and, um, get through this by respecting everybody and doing my best. So I I noticed that you had competing offers, uh, one from the the two ladies on the panel and one from another one of yep. the the entrepreneurs, and he was offering, uh, uh, you know, the money that you were looking for for just one percent of the company with his very special deal, uh, but you turned him down. Yeah. Why did you choose the one offer which gave up a little bit of a larger percentage of the company <clears throat> in exchange for the same amount of money? Why why did you choose between one and the other? What was the thought process there. Yeah, it, it was a surprising turn, actually. So I went in asking for 500000 for 2% of my company, which is a $25 million valuation, which is you know pretty steep for a company that doesn't have any sales, which we did not at the time. Um, but we do have a lot of patents and other IP and things that make it valuable. Um, and Kevin, uh, Mr. Wonderful, said, hey, I know you're asking for like low, low uh, percentage. I'll give you even less. Instead of 2%, I'll give you 500000 for 1%, but I get 10 bucks on every customer you get forever. 
And those licensing deals are very attractive in the short term because you don't give up the equity. But if you're even remotely successful, you end up being upside down on that. So Kevin's offer, after a few sales, if we got 5,000 sales, uh, you know, all, all of a sudden, or 50,000 sales, all of a sudden we're, we're farther behind and that, that offer is actually worse off. And in a company like this, which is a startup, you hate to see dollars going out because you need every dollar you can, you can get because you're burning cash. So that was one consideration. And then really, um, this is about, for me, spreading the word. You know, I'm, I'm thrilled to take their capital, but that wasn't what was most important to me. What was important to me was finding the right partner. And uh, Ann Wojcicki, founder of 23andMe, um, billionaire, life scientist, amazing, amazing entrepreneur. Her combined with Lori Grenier, who really, is, I think, speaks to people who love their cats, who, who shop on QVC. And this allows us to access, I think, whole new markets and give us credibility. So it was really a decision based on the partners as opposed to the economics of the deal. You know, that's what's great about Shark Tank, because it's not all so obvious, even when it looks kind of obvious to the watcher. Yeah, I mean, I, um, for what it's worth, like I thought there was zero chance that Lori would come in. And I had very little prepared for her compared to some of the others. Um, but in the end, you know, she she was a believer and, and, and in a funny way is probably one of the best partners. So um, funny how things turn out, like you said. So Aaron, where can our listeners take this conversation onto the internet after the show, your social media, the uh, Gallant's uh, webpage? Where can they order this technology if they have their young pet and they're ready to spay or neuter their pet today? Yeah, if anybody has a dog or cat that's getting spayed, neutered in the next few months, you know, check us out. It's just Gallant, www.gallant.com. And then we have, you know, Instagram, Facebook, et cetera. But you can find most of the great information on that on that website. There's a ton of science, probably more than most people want. But also we try to, you know, package it and make it uh, understandable as much as possible because it is some complex stuff. That's right. And www.gallant.com. That's G-A-L-L-A-N-T.com. Aaron Hirshhorn, thank you so much for joining me on the program tonight. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Grant. And that's all the time we have for tonight's Only in Miami show. I'd like to thank Aaron for joining me on the air live. And I'd like to thank Malcolm Nance and, of course, the Miami Book Fair. It just finished up. You can find out more about it. It's a year-round organization, www.miamibookfair.com. And we'll be back next Monday night. This is the Only in Miami show.